You're listening to an Irreverent Podcast. Visit irreverent.fm for more content from our friends. Hi, friends. Sarah here with a brief disclaimer. You are listening to a podcast about making space for other people as well as for yourself, which may mean that you're going to hear language and ideas and thoughts, not just about life, but about faith that are different than your own. My hope is that you will listen to this podcast with an attitude of space making, being able to hear things that are different from what you may interpret the world to be. It also may be different than how the hosts feel about the world. But again, we are working together to make a little bit more space for each other. So sit back, relax, and enjoy. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Making Spaces podcast, a podcast about making space for yourself and others. I'm one of the hosts, Sarah, and this is... The other host, Josie. And what you're hearing in the background is construction, because what Josie learned earlier is that I love making space for people, but I hate the sound of people making spaces. We've been in a construction (laughs) zone for the last month. It's driving me crazy. (laughs) I can't handle it. We just found out too that our apartment complex is, I guess it's an apartment complex. Feels weird calling it that. It's like a condo complex. Our street of a bungalows. I've been calling them cottages or bungalows. Cottages or bungalows makes more sense, right? Um, mm-hmm. So we have been listening to our neighbor over the fence build. I don't even know what is happening in his yard, but it's like, I think there's a fountain and there's definitely a hot tub. Um, <laughs> and yesterday, uh, I am all for people being able to listen to their music. I think you listen to it in your headphones, because if you're listening to music, uh, I know that uh, different people have different um, flavors of music they like that bump, 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 all day long, all day long should be your ears, not my ears. Just like I'm not going to blare my music all day long. <laughs> and ladies and gentlemen, this has been the section we're calling Sarah's turning into the get off my lawn woman. But it, yeah, so and our condo complex is going to be working on our roof. So guess what's happening starting Monday? Our own homes are becoming construction zones. So good news for me is I can work from the office. So yeah. now that I've had my moment to air my grievances, how <laughs> are you doing this morning, Josie? <laughs> I'm all right. I mean, in all honesty, I'm very used to it. Um, my house was a construction zone for a lot of time, like no kitchen construction zone. So, and I don't like wearing headphones. So I'm the bitch that has music and podcasts out loud. I'm going to tell I you, I don't, it's well, I really will not. I refuse rude. to wear headphones. It's really rude. It's really, really rude. <laughs> Especially if you're doing it really, really loud because it doesn't allow other people to enjoy the outdoor space. You are saying, what I'm listening to is what everyone around me should listen to. I think it's fine if you live in a house that doesn't back up onto someone else's house. I think it's when it backs up onto someone else's house and you're playing it loud enough that they have to listen to it if they have a window open, especially if you live in an area where you have to keep your windows open. Yeah. I mean, growing up in the hood, I just heard everybody's parties and it was never really, it's just a difference. We're, we're different. I we don't mind. Different. I Yes, I'm. Uh, I also hate when people play really, really loud music in their cars driving by. Drives me nuts. But also, what? that's me. Oh God, Sarah, we're the opposite. <laughs> I, I play my music. Considerate. It's max. just considerate. That's all. That's all. Just care about other people a lot. Maybe it's just like, for me, it's just like I care about other people, so I hope other people would care about other people in this way. But maybe it's just a difference. But mm-hmm. our neighbors bless him he's so nice too. the guy that's having all the work done 
And the other day he was out on this patio. I was like, Hey, trying to be like a little passive aggressive. How much longer you got on this project? <laughs> and honestly, if we had windows that were normal windows, it wouldn't matter because it wouldn't be so loud. But unfortunately we have these really cute little cottages that have little tiny windows. Oh. <laughs> like I said, really, it's just that I'm turning into the, Hey, get off my lawn lady. <laughs> um, how was your week this week before we jump into this amazing conversation with Rebecca Ching? Um, it's been all right. Slightly stressful. People are people, you know, people are people. We've had a lot to do. Our church is reopening. Well, not regathering. I would say we've been open, but gathering on the inside. And so we've got a lot of stuff that we got to get done for stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I think I'm having a little Mexican moment where we're trying to find uh, cleaning people and um, and maybe it's just because I've never dealt with companies before, you know, I don't, I've never hired a company to clean anything, mm. but I'm just like, mm, y'all are trying to rip off white people, aren't you? Which more power to them. I say rip off the white man reparations, <laughs> whatever, whatever. <laughs> no offense to all my fellow white people, um, beloved white people, I should say. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I found a nice, I posted on like the Santa Ana neighbor page and I found a lovely woman who needed the job who would do it for a very reasonable price um paying her a great hourly rate if I do the math because she's charging us monthly so I'm feeling good about it but uh that was very stressful it was stressful uh, because people were like we're not getting back to me in the way that I needed them to <laughs> and it was just so frustrating it's very frustrating but yeah. I'm feeling better now that I figured it out Awesome. Um, I am excited for us to jump into this conversation, even though I sounded super guys, I started the morning at the beach with my dog. I have no reason to be so grumpy. I think it's just, uh, I, I think I've learned to by central nervous system because of having ADHD and OCD, I can't handle repetitive sounds that are out of sync. Like it literally makes my central nervous system. And so that's why I'm such a grump. Also, I love to work in my beautiful home and I love to sit at my desk that I love so much and the space I've created. And I hate that I can't do that when other people are deciding what the environment's going to be like. So I'm going to stop grumping and just say, I'll wear my headphones and wear music, listen to music as loud as I can. And also, I wish we could get new windows, which would again be construction. So I don't know what I'm saying. So. Yeah, it's definitely a contentious subject because I just thought of this. Uh, they can't wear headphones technically, legally. You're right. They can't wear headphones. You are but, right. Uh, again, not the point, but yeah, that it's a contentious subject. We all respond differently to outside noise. It's true. Because I also have OCD, but it does not bother me. There you go. For it's whatever reason. Difference. <laughs> Um, friends, yeah. speaking of difference, I think we just did a great object <laughs> lesson. Uh, Rebecca Ching, who we spoke to, is a phenomenal psychotherapist who works with uh, leaders about and doing trauma-informed leadership. So understanding your own trauma as well as understanding the trauma of others um, in leadership. And um, it was just a great conversation. And even like our differences came out in this idea of like nice and kindness and what like mm -hmm what it means for us to make space for ourselves and others. And I think she's just a great conversationalist and just got some great ideas and thoughts around leadership and why it's important for leaders to know themselves, to be able to care for others and also to make space for others' trauma. What did you, anything you wanna add into there? 
Um, I don't want to deter people by saying that it's a leadership episode. Uh, we yeah, brought up that everybody's a leader. That's it's true. not just for like the CEOs and the whatever people in the world. It's everybody's a leader in their own life, whether they realize it or not. And we bring that up. And it's pretty cool. This idea of kindness and niceness, I think. Yeah. Um, and she even like, she brought this up later. I didn't realize it, which shows you how nice I am. But she kind of challenged me in this idea of like not caring. And mm-hmm. I really, thinking back, I really liked it. I didn't notice it, but I like it now. Like a therapist. Um, She's good. I know. The idea of like, I mean, I don't actually mean that I don't care, but you know, phrasing is important as well. But this idea of like caring is kindness and niceness is not necessarily caring. Exactly. Yeah. I dig it. And I, I mean, I love it because I'm not nice. I've always said I'm not freaking nice. <laughs> I am both nice and kind. <laughs> it's a brand. It's a Canadian brand. <laughs> Friends, we hope that you enjoyed this conversation as much as we have. Um, so check it out. And I had my own big rumble a couple years ago, differentiating kindness from nice. Nice is complicit and appeasing kind is loving and generous and i can you know add in because i there was a lot of trauma in my household and it was volatile so i could be nice to keep the peace it was survival to be nice and i and there's parts of me that sometimes still don't know it's 2021 and when there's vulnerable situations it's like just tell everyone we're awesome and smile and they're great and oh my gosh you're amazing and then I want to go to take a shower because I feel that was like I'm like no that was baloney and then but kind loving and generous and I've really been digging into this piece that can be generous with my time and to say I am going to invest and sit here with you and say this is not okay um, and loving isn't letting telling people how awesome they are. Oh, it is. It's it's investment. It's it is boundaries and accountability with compassion and empathy. It's this hodgepodge of it. But man, is the pushback. People want nice, especially from those who identify as female. They want nice. And I mean, there's parts of me that go to that effort and I don't care. And I wanna I wanna give you my version, my redheaded version of kindness right now. <laughs> Hi, friends, and welcome to another episode of the Making Spaces podcast, a podcast about making space both literally and figuratively for yourself and other people. I'm one of the hosts, Sarah, and this is the other host, Josie. And today we are excited to introduce to you, uh, to some of you, some of you may know her, is Rebecca Jing, who is a uh, psychotherapist who specializes in working with leaders, but also working with trauma-informed leadership and also helping kind of folks sort of take their business and think through how they can be uh, leaders that are healthy and holistic. And also she leads a group that I'm part of called Coffee and Conversation. So Rebecca, it is so good to have you on here. Um, Is there anything else you want us to share about you before we ask you the opening question? 
No, I guess maybe too, that I'm the host of the, my own podcast, the unburdened leader. So oh, of course, Ooh. yes. Which I just listened to two episodes <laughs> in a row because, um, you sent them to me and they're really good. Um, so check it out. It's called the unburdened leader and it really is great work. And, uh, Rebecca's work is based a lot on her work with the organization that Brene Brown runs that you're a part of. So that's incredible. So Rebecca, the question that we ask yes. everyone, and I know, um, cause we're friends. So I know you're going to want, I'm going to say one of your favorite spaces. You don't have to say your favorite space. What, what is one of your favorite spaces and why? So I thought about this question and I couldn't figure out one. So I have an answer and you can, you can call BS on it. And if you need me to get more specific, mm -hmm. I can, <laughs> but where there is water, good food and good conversation and something cozy. Ooh. So what I'm in the mountains, but I mean, you know, so you and I just broke bread and had a meal right on the water. We, we did. had a great conversation. So to me, I, I water, I need to hear it or see it. It's one of my favorite. And then there's a good meal. And then I'm sitting with people. We're having good conversation. That's meaningful and a blanket, or I'm wearing a sweater. So those, wherever those are, are my favorite places. <laughs> mm -hmm. So you have more of like an ideal, like setup of environment. Like these are the things, yes. however they are, wherever they are, it's these things. This is, yes. Those, yeah. People, places, things combo. Mm -hmm. And that's usually when I'm planning vacations or if I'm planning a workshop experience, that's usually what I filter through. So one of my most embarrassing stories about, um, well, life in general was I was, um, breaking up with a boyfriend and I, I don't think I was even really sure I wanted to break up with him, but I was having these like doubts about feeling not ready to be in such a committed relationship. And I said these words to him. I said, you have to understand that I'm just a water person and you're a mountain person. Like I'm a beach person and you're a mountain person. And he looked at me and said, Sarah, everyone effing loves the beach. Like, <laughs> as if, like those are not two different types of people. Most people like water, Sarah. Most people mm -hmm. like water. Like we're not two different types of people, but I was just trying to create this like narrative where he was a mountain man and I was a beach girl, which wasn't even true because we hiked together all the time. And also, you know, I love the mountains. So I don't know where that was coming from, but guys, that is one of the most embarrassing things that I've said. I call BS on him because I hate the beach. I hate the ocean. I hate you. Do? I do. It's, um, it's dangerous. Okay. It's very dangerous. Outside. Do you like water of any type? <laughs> Um, well, I actually have a fear of water, but I like the lake and I like rivers. Okay. Yes, so I love them all. <laughs> all, all of them. All. No, what, what's dangerous about the beach? Is it like Jaws will find you dangerous or something else? Uh, one, that's one thing. Uh, there's multiple <laughs> things that are dangerous about the ocean. I have come to acknowledge like it'll suck you out. Uh, what is it called? <laughs> Riptides, uh, poisonous things i don't know venomous things whatever yeah the it, ocean's not our home it's no. not our home <laughs> rebecca I can say that her respect her husband was a professional lifeguard for a long time so rebecca <laughs> she always had like a built-in way of being okay in the ocean so i'm just knows. i was born he literally does. feet from the ocean so i have i've just always needed to be around the ocean that's just something for me i like it but i understand that for a lot of people it's not that same sense of sacred space. You know, people, I live in San Diego and I, I've worked with people who they don't go to the beach. And it was this mm -hmm. thing. I grew up in Minnesota. I mean, where I, lake life was my jam, ponds 
puddles. We had it all. Um, but the ocean was like the Mecca for me. And I just was like, really? They're like, oh, the sand mm-hmm. or do the creatures. But you I know, like- again, my parents, <laughs> I, my parents took me, I saw, I'm dating myself here. My, I saw Jaws in the theater. Okay. So I was single digits old. So trauma informed, they were not, but it was like a movie and maybe they didn't have childcare. I don't know. But like, it took me a while, even in pools in the deep end, I was like, no, there's something I, I got. Was, I can't touch the I bottom. Feel that. There was yeah. this one movie I remember as a kid. I don't know what movie. It was probably a really crappy horror, like scary movie. Cause it was, I remember it was like a giant crocodile that came in a pool and ate a little kid. I don't even oh, remember geez. what movie this was, but it was Wait, what? <laughs> and I was never really scared of pools, but I always was like making sure that the size of the pipes were a certain type of way. I don't know. No, that makes sense to me. That absolutely makes sense to me. I had a fear of, um, cause I, I was after born near the ocean, we moved, uh, to Ontario, which is a little more inland. Um, but there's a lot of really big lakes, very similar to Minnesota. So I grew up on a very big lake and literally our house, the beach and the dock, I grew up on the water. But <sighs> what I couldn't stand was being around places where you can't see the bottom. Oh, because same reason I had seen some sort of movie where this thing touched your feet. And so anytime I could feel seaweed, I was sure that something was going to take me down. So I told you about my seaweed story, right? I was my second date with my now husband, who at the time was still working as a lifeguard here in San Diego. And I call it alien seaweed. There's like these huge pods. Yes. And it started getting around me and I started flailing and we weren't too far from the coast. And my husband could see his colleagues starting to do the whole, get the binos out and check. And he goes, we will not be a rescue. And he did the all clear sign. He's like, and I was like, okay, what does that mean? He's like, stop squirming. And I, I mean, he is so easygoing, but he was like, I was like, okay, what do you need? And he's like, just, I'm like, get me away from the alien seaweed now. <laughs> it's touching me and I don't like it. <laughs> I don't like it. The pods, the pods. Anyway, so. And you have no still, proof that still- that hasn't killed someone. We don't know that that's not why people drown. It could be the Wait, gross seaweed. For whatever reason, my dog thinks he needs to pee on those. Whenever they're on the beach, he'll be like, do, 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 do. Yep. I'm going to just own this right here. And I don't know why. Hmm. I don't know why. Rebecca, along with the ocean, one of your other favorite spaces like that segue guys is helping uh, leaders kind of work around this idea of trauma. Do you want to talk a little bit about how you kind of came into that and uh, a little bit about how it ended up being in a podcast as well? Yeah, well, I've been discouraged to talk about leadership and the word trauma in the same sentence. Uh, In fact, when I was working on my uh, leadership coach training and I was with leaders from Google and Intel and Slack and all of those spaces. And they're like, Hey, what are you working on? And I share, like, I want to do some sort, I want to help develop some trauma-informed resources and with leaders and their eyes got all big and they're like, you can't talk about that word. And I'm like, but why they're like, it's too much. It's too much, Rebecca. And talk about compassion and, and talk about gratitude, you know, (laughs) talk about, you know, and I was like, okay. And I sat with it and I'm like, no, this is exactly why we need to destigmatize trauma. Because as when I unpacked it further, they were afraid that if we name it, they're going to just unpack everything with their team. If they even acknowledge people have had difficult experiences, they're going to be responsible. And even more importantly, one of them pulled me aside and said, honestly, if I pay attention to it, I'm gonna to have to deal with my own stuff. And I was like sealed. 
sealed. I'm on this. And so trauma-informed leadership. And, and again, if you're on the, in the interwebs, my gosh, since I started playing around with this five or six years ago, it's kind of exploded to trauma becoming this trendy thing, which I've, I've feelings about. Um, but really I work with folks on a trauma-informed leadership mindset, or what does it mean to create a trauma-informed culture? It is not about therapy. It's not about everyone sharing their deepest, darkest secrets, but taking these principles, these trauma-informed principles that are in a clinical space about how do we create a, a space that is safe and brave that we can have? What's the, what does it look like to create a container that's safe and brave? And instead of doing top-down work, how do we create collaborative work? And, and helping the leaders build up their capacity for vulnerability, which is where I integrate Brene's work and my work with internal family systems. So they can sit with the discomfort of, I don't know how they're going to respond, or I want to get feedback or someone's going to, you know, instead of looking at procrastination as someone who's just resistant going, okay, something's it's the, okay. Something's going on there. When we look at our standard operating operating procedures our SOPs and for, for dealing with accountability and boundaries, we do, how do we do that with empathy and compassion, but we still have these guardrails in place. So it's not like, Hey, whatever you want, whatever you want, there still is, Hey, some of this stuff we can hold in our space. Cause we're going to get the best out of the people. We're going to have retention. Um, we're going to enjoy what we do. And we're also going to have that container, just like teenagers that need to know mom and dad still have the rules humans in general, we all need to have that container, even test it, but it, it helps leaders know. It doesn't mean, oh, I've been through really hard things so I can get away with everything. Not at all. It's promoting resources and, and honoring, you know, September is, is suicide prevention and awareness month. So what is it like just to include in your newsletter and resources? What is it like to, to celebrate and honor asking for help when there's struggle and normalizing struggle as the part of the process and utilizing peer support and not like doing group therapy training, but really normalizing, Hey, this, this project was hard or this experience that just happened that we went through as a, as a whole entire globe with the pandemic, this was hard and normalizing that. So those are the things I work with people on to take those kind of trauma informed principles so that we don't do harm. Um, but really cultivate cultures that are not only safe and brave, but inclusive, equitable, collaborative. And what does it take for, what, what does the leader have to do, the inner work they have to do and the support they need to hold, have the capacity for those systems? It's funny. I, um, when I, what I heard and what you just said as someone who has been a leader for a long time and sometimes they sure have so. um this idea th that i think is true um is that we have this moment where we think well if i know this thing then i am now responsible for it um because we've you been told every, everything in the room we're responsible and, and i think sometimes people who have never held a high leadership position don't understand the magnitude of uh you feel the pressure whether they see it or not that everything is on me, including the mental health of my staff, and which is a false narrative. It's not true. It's never been about mm -hmm. you. I am not responsible for people. I'm responsible for making a space where they can care for their mental health, but I am not responsible for their mental health. And I think that's, it's an interesting yes. moment when people have to re recognize, hey, like unhealthy systems make us think we're responsible for everything, including um, believing that if I am aware of something now I'm responsible for it, which is not actually helpful for anyone. 
Well, and you bring up an interesting point because that's one side of the spectrum, right? If you bring it up, you're responsible for it all. The other side is don't bring it up. Or if anyone's got their ish come up, oh, it's their stuff. It's their resistance. They need to figure it out. And we other them. And again, there's a spectrum of this. I mean, humans are human, (laughs) Um, but it's really redefining how we look at struggle within ourselves and with others. And, and the work to create spaces that are brave and safe, that um, are collaborative, means it's going to be messy. And man, do we love efficiency. We love, I, I love efficiency. I like it tidy. I like it planned, right? We, you know, Sarah just did, a, you pointed at you too, we're, we're Enneagram threes, you know? And, and my gosh, there's something super uncomfortable about this, but at the same time, it's energizing. And so I think we're in this interesting reckoning of we can talk about those things and they're all like cool to say, but to implement them is not tidy, but I find it so energizing and exciting. Well, I would even say that your work applies to leaderships of all levels, right? We can talk about the big leaders in the world and how they have all these stresses in their life. But you think about like the leaders in a small family unit are, it's the same spectrum, right? You have the one side where people feel responsible for everybody else's stuff. And you have the other side who think, well, that's your problem. And you might have both your parents on either side or you might have both your parents on one side or whatever it is. But this is all very applicable, not to just to, again, like the big leaders, but any type of person in general, because we're all leaders in some aspect, whether we want to accept that or not. Absolutely. Well, I, I, I'm so glad you brought that up because that is exactly true. Some people tap out of their own power mm-hmm. on how they can care for themselves and they underestimate their impact. And I read this book. Gosh, back when I was on Young Life staff, back in the day, Sarah. And we talked about was, that. If you want, Josie, you, you've got some good, she's got some good stories. <laughs> oh, <no. laughs> and I read this book at, at a training. It was a leadership training. And the author was talking about how, when we, you know, how do we want to impact the room that we're in? And, and I, and subsequently just getting trained and really seeing the world through systems and just understanding systems theory and homeostasis and status quo and all of that, recognizing you, we are absolutely all leaders. When we walk into a room, the energy in that room changes, the physics of that room change. So what do we want that impact to be like in, in young life, in the young life world, it's, we often think the leaders are the ones up front giving the talks or doing the skits and, and but no, we can, how we lead ourselves and our systems when we're afraid, when we're uncomfortable, when we're excited, when we're curious and how we hold space for others. And when we enter a space, we can't underestimate that. And so many people have been told to underestimate that or have never been empowered. Um, and we have this, oh, I'm not a leader is I, that when I hear that, there's a lot of unlearning <laughs> and unpacking to do, because I, I agree there's different types of leadership. Um, but it's really taking responsibility of how we lead ourselves, our system, our emotions, our own story, our own struggles, and then how we hold space for others as they desire to do the same. So thank you for mentioning that. And that's how we lead from the living room to the boardroom and everything in between. I think that's such a great point because how often we have dehumanized people to say, oh, they're the, that's the leader and everyone else doesn't have to own up to or, or to feel um, agency in their space, whatever that might be, right? Like, like Josie said, whether it's in a home or, you know, the idea that everyone is at some, in some way influencing someone. And I think that, yes, that's a helpful thing for us to think. We oftentimes, I think we think our, our stories are neutral. So like, uh, I, 
I can come mm. into this space having, I'm, I don't bring anything into this and, and every single place that you lead or don't lead or whatever it might be, we're, we never come in neutral. We all come in with who we were in the past, the lenses that we have, the experiences we've mm. had. Um, and I, I think sometimes we think like, it's not about me. Um, it's not just like the positives that are happening, but also the negative implications, you know, um, and I'm so grateful for the people in my life who will say to me, like, it's not, it's not about you. Like this is, has nothing to do with this. So, mm -hmm. but you if you're not informed, you may think, oh, this is something either to do negatively with that person or negatively to do with yourself instead of going, huh, I wonder what's happening between these words. Or I wonder how I can create a space where we're honest about what's between the words or between the, the actions sometimes. Well, right. We talk about, you know, impact. And so if something impacts us, how do we lead ourselves? How do we check in with the parts of us that got tapped into that are still holding our difficult life experiences or the parts of us, like for me, that want to lash out or the parts of me that want to tap out. And how do I get curious about that? And that's some powerful leadership right now. Just think if we had more curiosity about our own responses and, and really owned our impact too. So I, the other thing that my brain exploded a little bit when you said that is if people think their story is neutral, my gosh, what, what editing have people done to their stories? What have we done to discount and devalue our own stories and how that just lets power the systems that are in power that are doing harm have a party? No, I don't neutral, neutral is like silence. I mean, no, I lived in Switzerland for four years and I learned that they said they were neutral, but they took Nazi gold. I'm like, that's not neutral. Those banks still took Nazi gold. And not, also uh, not you have the largest military. So hello. Yeah, you're, you're, it's almost, that's a great metaphor for a person because per capita, right mm -hmm. in the cave, the literal cave, like my friend uh, is air force. And when we were in Switzerland, like there, he was like, that's not a cave. It's like, what? He was like, there are planes in there. Like all these things about Switzerland, like Switzerland is neutral, but it doesn't mean there's not a war inside friends. It's more Feels than the like sound a of music. Yes. <laughs> Good chocolate sound of music. And Almost everyone goes through the military, has a weapon, and it's the, one of the least violent countries, but that's a whole nother Yeah, that's a whole, oh man, yes. I do love Switzerland, <laughs> it's especially the chocolate. Actually, now that you say that, I, I'm not even a chocolate Hello, person, and, bread. and I like that chocolate. Chocolate and bread. It's a beautiful thing. We're back there. to wanting to be with food in the ocean. Yes, now you get a cozy blanket. <laughs> when you started your podcast, you say the unburdened leader. Can you talk a little bit about why that as a as a title, right? Because titles matter. We're, we're obviously trying to say something when Absolutely. we choose a title. So one of, I mentioned this briefly, one of the major influences on the work I do is uh, based on internal family systems founded by Richard Schwartz. And part of this internal family systems process that sets it apart is it really does, it depathologizes the struggle. It talks about befriending our struggle with these different parts and understanding that at the core, we have this self or, or the soul, I often call it the soul, where we have these qualities that when parts of us that are struggling and that are holding pain, connect with that self or soul, that healing or what he has termed unburdening happens. And when we're burdened with our pain, with our fears, with shame, with despair, it's hard to lead ourselves or anyone else better. So 
it, it became very clear to me, uh, the more unburdened leaders, the better, the more that are just pursuing that as a lifelong practice. So, so that, that process is really what sets that theory apart. Often we talk about having to think through, we got to think through the solutions and think through the pain, but really IFS is about feeling through it and really building up our emotional capacity, our emotional literacy, and allowing that space to connect with our own innate capacity of, of healing, of our own courage and curiosity and calmly sees that uh, Dick Schwartz talks about in, in self. And then when that happens, the unburdening happens. And that is, that is sacred. That's holy to me. And, and I know for me that my part of these process, whether it's working with Brene Brown's work or IFS is we get to do it ourselves and seeing how that impacted, how I led myself, how I impacted how I parent and connect in my marriage, let alone um, lead others. Um, it was just a game changer to find more joy and satisfaction. It wasn't about the hustle. It wasn't about metrics. It wasn't about profit or bottom line. And we, it's important to pay attention to those things and own our experience, but we are carrying so many burdens and we've shamed those burdens. So we hide them and hide them. And then I kept seeing these statistics, particularly with entrepreneurs um, around depression, anxiety, um, suicide and suicide attempts, PTSD, substance abuse, relationship, dis, you know, just struggles and seeing how they were exceptionally, they were already high in our adult population in our country, but within this entrepreneur space, it was exceptionally high. And so I'm like something, we've got the most creative, innovative, bold folks doing amazing things and they're struggling just to function because we said it wasn't okay. Um, it's like, let's just numb it, push it back. And, and so with this reckoning that we've been going on in our, in our culture to say, you know, it's not okay. Um, it's not okay to dehumanize struggle and pain, the suck it up, chin up, pull up your bootstraps, hide your pain. We're so afraid of being misunderstood. And I, I the more that I do this work with leaders, like, wow. So if I just own my own story and I sit with my own story of struggle, I'm not going to shame others when they are struggling with it. I'm not going to, you know, I'm, I'm not going to have a leadership fail and dismiss someone when they come in with the struggle, because I'm going to be able to sit with discomfort better We're not, without even talking about it. Right. And so if I can sit with their discomfort better, it's because I'm sitting with my own better. And I, I, my first job out of school was working in DC and politics and it wasn't like group hug time. It was, <laughs> it was about power and, and it was, and it was exciting. Um, and so looking back on that time and then seeing leaders, some of, I, I could tell stories, but I won't on a recording with this one, but you see some of the most leaders that names that we know that were terrified because they were so worried uh, about being misunderstood. And that just in my early twenties made left a lasting impact on me. It's and so, so yeah. Fascinating because, and maybe it's just because I've gone to a lot of therapy. I've gone to therapy since I was seven years old. Yeah. <laughs> which is a blessing and a curse but most of the time people I'm a pretty unburdened human being um thank you therapy and most of the time people think that I just have this like laissez-faire way of living life and because they're like Josie how do you just not give a shit and I was like why should I like why do I need to hold everything for everybody why do I need to let my feelings dictate my life when I don't even want to accept the feelings in the first place why don't why can't why am I ignoring how I feel when something happens why don't I just sit down be able to name it and then move on 
it's very simple people often think of like because I'm Latin and people think of Latin women as like fiery and spicy but the benefit of being like an aggressive being in an aggressive culture and this comes out in my uh, couples therapy with my partner is I'm like why am I gonna sit down and stew and simmer and have a terrible week because I'm mad at my partner when I can just rip off the band-aid and get over it because I know how I feel and oftentimes I've noticed in cultures that people don't want to know how they feel they say they do but they really don't they really people say they're self-aware people don't really want to be self-aware though because it it's a whole situation right to know yourself and to know the traumas that you've gone through and to know why you are the way you are and what informs you but that's also what makes life in my opinion easier to live I do have chronic depression and my depression has been significantly lessened since I've known why I mean I'm depressed because there's a chemical imbalance in my brain but I know my triggers I know what kind of depression I'm having that day because there's like a little there's like a variation Um, and I think it's made me into a better person which I'm not much of a I'm not like I don't have I'm not an influencer in the big bad world but I'm pretty influential in my sphere of humans I think thanks to being informed in therapy and I think that's one of the benefits of what you're talking about is knowing the feelings and reckoning with the feelings and reckoning with the trauma you bring up an interesting point about caring um and I'm recognizing it's pretty brave work to care Mm -hmm. and there's sometimes this message like you know there was this season right like I don't give any seven f's you know and Mm -hmm. and and you know Brene and her her wisdom shared like the 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 dangers of not caring at all. Mm -hmm. We lose our capacity for compassion. If we care too much, we lose our capacity for, if we don't care at all, we lose our capacity for connection. If we don't care at all, we lose our capacity for compassion. And it's an interesting tension to understand that if I'm going to care, I'm going to have my heart broken. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't mean I did anything wrong. And when I say that people go, you know, and so it's that when I am in the place of, for me, and sometimes I'm envious of the folks who's like, I can just turn it off. But for me, if I am like, I don't care, I, my husband's like, uh oh, uh oh, it's danger. And because he's like, okay, because it takes me a long time to get there. And if I get there, then he knows, whoa, okay, what's happening here? Because if I'm at my effort, I go to, I don't care. And I can default to caring too much. I think that's anyone who is a helper of any kind um, can fall into the caring too much and and it's socially approved. But um, I think that's when I hit the, I can't care at all. For me, that's one of my trailheads to know that my sponge is full. The sponge is saturated. (laughs) And, And I think we shame caring and letting it get to us at least for me, I, I grew up with that. Um, and so I, I appreciate and respect the boldness of like, I can let it go. Um, but for me and a lot of the people that I work with, that's actually one of my kind of like tells if I get there. And at the same time though, like I sense with you, I love like, let's just rip the bandaid off. Let's go there. <laughs> but that's because you know? I care, right? I care to exactly. resolve the situation. <laughs> 
Right. And then the buzzkill is that most people don't roll that way. They need to warm up to it. For me, that's what I'm like, dig it. I gotta, I gotta, I gotta on-ramp into this. And so, yeah, cause it's not, a, it's efficient just to like hash it out and move forward. Oh, I'm an on-ramper. <laughs> I know that about me. I know that. I, <laughs> and it's because of the culture I grew up in, right? Um, it's the kindness. Kindness is very important to me. Uh, it is a value uh, that I like in my therapy sessions, we've been coming up with like, what are our rooted values that are the things that really matter? And so for me, I learned kindness and maybe not in a healthy way. I think I'm learning how to redefine kindness, but kindness for me was you don't come at someone like so hard at first. Um, and so it's, it's always about learning how to be culturally sensitive to like, okay, some people it's really important for them. Or like my friends who are like, I'm just, I need us like, I need boldness and honesty. And I'm like, awesome. And I like Josie. And then my other friend, Kevin, like just, they need it. And I'm like, awesome. And loving me means sometimes you gotta like Kevin will call me and be like, Hey, so I said something like super huge. And I just came at you and it wasn't like a shocking thing to me, but it was a shocking thing to you. And I'm so sorry. Like I'm realizing our differences, like it doesn't bother me. And Josie and I have had conversations where she's like, yeah. you thought that would end our friendship. And like, yeah, it's just because that's the way that I live and exist in the world. And to know that even as a leader and by leader, just as a human, I think it's helpful just to, like you said, be informed of not just your own self, but sort of how are other people and to honor that, right. To honor that, like, Hey, right. If this person's saying, I don't care, that for them is a sign for me. Like your husband knows you well enough to go, oh, if they're saying I don't care. Whereas some people, you know, that's, that's just how they are. You kind of have to know. And that, again, it requires a deep sense of knowing self to know the other and then to be open to knowing the other. I think the, the tough part is knowing that balance, particularly for folks who came from um, like religious systems that maybe you had oh, to, yeah. there wasn't a balance. You know, we talked uh, well, recently about how it's a wheel, a balance of self-understanding and the understanding of other as well. And anytime it's off balance, it's going to, it's going to be a weird oh, wheel. Then, then it's just like what we call a parts party, right? The parts of ourselves are parting yeah. with the parts of themselves that aren't doing well, you know, and you bring up kindness. And I had my own big rumble a couple of years ago, differentiating kindness from nice. Mm -hmm. Nice is complicit and appeasing kind is loving and generous amen and i can you know because I, I there was a lot of trauma in my household and it was volatile so i could be nice to keep the peace it was survival to right. be nice and i and there's parts of me that sometimes still don't know it's 2021 when there's vulnerable situations it's like just tell everyone how awesome and smile and they're great and Same. oh my gosh <laughs> you're amazing and then i want to go to take a shower because i feel Bleh. that was like i'm like no that was baloney and then but kind loving and generous and i've really been digging into this piece that can be generous with my time and to say, I am going to invest and sit here with you and say, this is not okay. Um, and loving isn't letting, telling people how awesome they are always. It's, it's investment. It's, it is boundaries and accountability with compassion and empathy. It's this hodgepodge of it, but man is the pushback. People want nice, especially from those who identify as female, they want nice. And mm -hmm. I mean, there's parts of me 
that go to that effort and I don't care. And I want to, I want to give you my version, my redheaded version of kindness right my now. My redheaded version, <laughs> which is so spicy. funny. But- <laughs> I think it's really funny that I, I've always rejected the term nice where people, I tell people like, nobody would describe me as a nice human being. I'm not nice. And to me, it was like, I saw nice as again, like a female, like the typical, like demure female. And I've always rejected it. And now I know why. Cause uh, yeah, I'm not nice. I'm, I might be kind on a good day, but I'm not nice. <laughs> but you and, know, it's, it, it could, we could risk losing community if we're not nice, right? Especially in true. faith communities, like if we're not following the role. And so it takes a lot of courage to choose a kindness that's breaking the system. And so it's easy to talk about this stuff and hashtag it, but to really choose uh, to be loving and generous with myself and choosing to work through something with those and and be generous with sitting through something. It's a messy conversation. And I'm like, this is so annoying or irritating or, oh my gosh, I'm scared. I, you know, I don't want to be rejected. I don't want to lose this space. Mm -hmm. And and it's so primal to not want to lose that space. And so that's why nice is a, I mean, I'm from Minnesota. We call, we joke about it. Minnesota nice. nice. (laughs) Got it. I'm Canadian. You're my cousin. You're my Canadian cousin. Yes. Yeah. (laughs) Canadian. and. And it, it comes out because it's like, hi, yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's like the fakeness. And maybe there's a version of that in the South. Maybe that's the bless yeah. you of the South. But um, but sometimes but I, I it's think- really nice uh, to say the word nice. Sometimes I think particularly <laughs> uh, when I've been in difficult spaces where I'm rumbling all the time, uh, I found myself when I was uh, in uh, Alabama in March, it was just really nice to have people be kind, like, just be like, hi, how you doing? Like in a, in a way that I feel like doesn't happen a lot here. Well, it was in a Orange break, County, right? It was a, it, it was, was a break, break for your yeah. system just to yeah. have like mm-hmm. nice weather today. Yeah. How yeah, are yeah. you doing? You're you know? walking in your and, neighborhood. Hey, and they know each other really well. And I think that's the difference. You know, we, we live in it and our, I would say everyone's nice in our cul-de-sac. Um, Josie and I now live in the same cul-de-sac. I think everyone's really kind and nice here because we all know each other and Josie will get to know all the different people in the thing. I think that it, it's an interesting thing because you're right, there is a difference between nice and kind. And I think sometimes I, I think both can have their place and can be important, but I think it's the demanding people to be nice is not necessarily, uh, it's not great. Um, particularly women within the church structures. I think that's been a, a, a fault, but I think asking people to be kind is important. Um, and I mm-hmm. think that's been the, the interesting gift of sort of beginning to understand more and more like, oh, what is the space that I want to be around and the space I want to create for people? And, and you're right. It's not necessarily like, but we were taught like n- nice little girls, you know, be a nice little girl or whatever. Like even the language that we use around um, then you'll children. Be loved. Mm-hmm. Right to belong you'll be loved, to you'll be, you'll be cared be, for to belong you got right it. right and I think that's the it's the spaces that we're creating that how do we invite someone to be themselves like like you said Jez you didn't want to be I don't want to be nice but what does it mean to be kind um, what does that look like and I think it is an ability to say what does the other need as well as what do I need in the space and not letting go of one for the other and it's such a dance it's such a dance and I think sometimes it's we a, get it right and sometimes we don't. Oh my gosh. And I think that's the point. I appreciate you saying that because that's why a lot of people don't want to go there because I'm not, they don't know the outcome, right? And perfectionism loves certainty, you know, hates vulnerability. Um, and 
if we don't know what we're going into, but it's like, Hey, I care enough to try and rumble. And there might be an ongoing discussion. It's, it's not efficient, but it's really the most efficient thing we can do, but it's just redefining a lot of these cultural mm-hmm. kind of norms we've breathed in and are in our DNA. And it, it's tricky because when we are afraid of losing community and connection, it's amazing how much I can sell myself out when I think I'm going to lose something. And then I'm like, wait, are they important? Is this space important more than belonging here in, in me and to the values? And, and and now that I've got kids, I'm like, do I want them to see that? Um, and I've got my daughter actually just peeked around here. Now she's listening. <laughs> she, always, she eavesdrops on these conversations and I, then I hear it. about it a week from now. So we'll see what she says. We talk a lot about belonging and nice and versus kind. And what does that mean? And, and, you know, cause you know, my daughter, she is bold and will not edit. And I'm like, well, that could be seen as not nice, but really is about, let's talk about respect and knowing you're <laughs> reading, the, reading the room too. Right. Which like, is difficult. So know. part of the story is her daughter uh, lives boldly on the spectrum. Um, mm-hmm. And so very boldly, very boldly on the spectrum. Uh, my friend today was talking about his son who he says lives courageously on the spectrum. Um, mm-hmm. And I think in a weird way, it gifts us with like, what does it look like when people don't have filters? Like, so his son will FaceTime. And then when he sees he's with me, goes, never mind. <laughs> hangs up and he's like, okay. He's like, it's not you. He just doesn't like when there's more than one person. <laughs> he's just very like, you know? Um, and I yeah. think there is this like un burdened sense that sometimes it's a gift, right? To be able to fly above the bullshit and just do the thing. But I also think, again, I think there is a give and take and it takes time. I think I'm definitely now as I'm older, starting to understand and and, and be able to see the times when I have um, not been faithful to myself uh, and Mm, not held on to the thing that makes me, me and just um, recognize like, oh, that was a moment when I didn't hold on to what my truth is. I, I think it was actually in a Brene Brooke where she talks about like, and I can't get it in my head, this idea that like clarity is kind, right? It's clear as kind. Yeah, dare to lead, clear as kind. And that was that was really hard because when I was reading that book, I was in a situation where I was having to let a staff member go. Um, this was a couple of churches ago. Mm. And it was, you know, I thought the kind thing to be would just be like, oh, we're, you know, we're downsizing, you know, whatever. But no, that wasn't it. It wasn't a good fit. And there were some things. And it was just the hard work of being like, oh, in this moment, I'm gonna have to be, to be truthful was most kind. I mean, you, you don't go after them with like, here's all your, here's a list of grievances um, that I have prepared alphabetically, but more just to be like, Hey, this, this is what's happening versus, you know, the um, path of least resistance, which sometimes is the easiest. It feels like, which actually isn't the easiest. Cause later you go home and you want to take that shower. Yeah. I think yeah. that kind of brings me to a question that the clearest kind that's very easy for me because I'm an Enneagram eight and I love conflict. How do you use the Enneagram at all in your practice? You know, I've not been trained in it, but I've been around those who are very proficient and done a lot of reading on it. I know some numbers better than others. Um, but I definitely ask when I, when I, um, start working my engagements with my leadership clients, I ask all the assessments and tests that they've done. So it helps me. And sometimes I'll do a little consultation with the pros on anything <laughs> I should be aware of if there's something going on, but my, my lens too, especially from an internal family systems lens is we have all of those 
numbers in us that we may yes. just have a dominant number. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's, that's really how I frame it. So maybe there's some, those protectors, those managers that are more dominant. So my, my three aspect and, you know, three, I've got some eight to sometimes test as an eight too. And, um, I know those two get confl- conflated a lot and, you know, winging to the two of, you know, being, I just finished my 18th year as a psychotherapist and, you know, got, got yelled at when I was in New York city for being too nice to my clients. And you're like, so I'm, I'm from like, Minnesota. Okay. <laughs> I'm from Minnesota. And I was rude in Minnesota. I was too blunt out there. So anyways, oh, so, I, get so that. I do, I, I do enjoy it. Um, but I also am very cautious because I've seen, especially like Myers Briggs and some of these other tests, how people can sometimes weaponize no, or for sure. you know, put people in a box. So I use it as an internal curiosity and helping. And if people are improving their self-awareness, it's a nice on-ramp for that to, to explore that. Um, I don't like it when there's like when I first like you know test as a three I like went through like this sucks this I suck holy cow I'm mean, swimming in the deep end of shame all the time like what is this test about just telling us where we all suck I think yeah. definitely <laughs> had some reactions to it you know and everyone like this was life changing I'm like what do you mean it just tells me these things that I'm I'm like oh my gosh I don't feel better but it took me a while like you need to expand <laughs> your experience I think of this it. idea of so it being t- weaponized right like you're this mm-hmm. and you're that. And I've, I've made that mistake before too, because I I'll be like, for oh, sure they're acting out of their, did it. And it's like, no, they're acting out of their story They're you know, right. But also being aware, I think for me, the piece that I loved so much about it and why out of all the things, it, it really has more to do with your um, motivations versus your expression. So people that will need different numbers. Yes. Mm-hmm. And I think that's helpful when someone self-identifies as something and can say, Hey, this is the thing that is motivating me. Uh, but again, it takes a level of curiosity. You have to have curiosity about the other person. You can't just hear a number and decide, you know, I think it's helpful too, to know, like, why am I maybe not fitting with someone? Why, why are we experiencing, like, I'm saying words that I think should sound this way. They're saying words. Right. And just to understand that sometimes like there's just a difference in motivation and a different understanding of, I don't know where you're coming from. And so it's a curiosity to get with yourself. And again, that piece of being curious about the other people, I think is a really important part of it. Like, but I, I laugh so hard because I've been around places where people will be like, oh, I can't date him because he's a whatever. I'm like, I don't. I've heard that too. No. That's <laughs> and the IFS why. lens. Yeah, exactly. But it's a, it's a, well, just like Beach Mountain. Maybe it's an out for someone. I don't know. <laughs> that but- was just complete bull crap. If he ever listens to my stuff, I was just scared. I was just, you're great. Right. You're still a great human. I was just petrified. Well, we do other people though so easily. And and from an IFS lens, we have this approach that all parts are welcome. All parts of us are welcome. And we try not to exile. And we do that as a culture. And to really live that though, that's not easy. So I, they're welcome in the sense I'm going to have respect and curiosity. I may not like them in the moment. Parts of me might be like, what are you going on? But that's the inner work. That's what we call it. The YOU, the U-turn, you know, go, okay. That flash of annoyance, that flash of anger, that flash of fear, but I take care of what I feel first. And then I can show up uh, better for that person. And it's hard in, you know, in situations where you need to make quick decisions. But I think, again, we have to slow our roll. And it, it is really easy to go, oh, they're just, and it's, it is, it makes me feel better. Oh, they're just whatever number that I don't, I get, I get irritated with, which I will not say. Um, oh, it's just that. And it's easier for me to offload that on them versus what is it about this personality trait 
that lights me up and I have to do the work on it. And I'm like, no, can it just be them? Can they just suck and be irritating and I'd be fine and I'm fine. And I'm like, no, dang it. <laughs> but it, it is a lot easier to just to, to other them. And I see it's, it feels very reductive. It doesn't feel complex. And we are so, so multifaceted. I love <laughs> the word. So, to yeah. There's Dr. Jerome. Um, I don't know if you've read any of his stuff. He's a um, neurologist and a chiropractor actually has both. Um, and he has written a book that talks about um, how we are every Enneagram and through trauma wow. and experience, we, no way. Um, we sit in one and then we'll sit in the other. And then we'll, it's actually a beautiful book. He got an artist to do. It's really beautiful. Um, and he works Jeez. with like mostly he works with a lot of head trauma stuff. So he actually works with a lot of professional athletes. Ah, um, a lot but he of TBIs helped, and, mm -hmm. wow. Yeah, he's incredible. And through his own, he had head trauma. And anyway, this is how he got into the Enneagram and trying to understand. And it is, it's really fascinating to, uh, for him to say, oh no, you are, you're a multitude. And that moment you're acting out of this part and then this part and to just sort of welcome all of the pieces of you into the space. Um, and often I think that's helpful for us to not, Anytime we think one thing, you know, makes the identity of another person or even ourselves. I think about how many times I've let false narratives be my identity. This is who I am. Well, the minute that's taken out, you know, um, I think we recognize that we are all onions. We're all complicated, just like donkey from Shrek. Yes. And we, and we, it's easy to exile. It's easy just to, we, we live in a just world culture. Let's just put them away. Let's just, you know turn on the electric chair let's just get them out of our community or culture or society whatever and then i'll feel better and again there are there accountability is accountability if people do, do harm they need accountability it's not what i'm talking about. it's like it's the spirit mm. of it all and um and i and that's just really darkening our hearts and and it's therefore darkening all the spaces we're in too when we yeah have that lens from that space mm-hmm I love it. Thank you so much for coming on and for talking and everyone needs to go check out her podcast. If you have one thing we always like to end with, like, is there one way, one tangible way that you can think of that people can make space from themselves or others? What would it be today? Hmm. Yeah, I saw, you know, I saw, I was rumbling with that in a tangible way. <sighs> you know, I, I really just paying attention paying attention to what you're feeling and, and get curious about it and not, and stay with that curiosity, not trying to fix it or analyze it. Just pay attention. Mm. Yeah. And practicing presence, even, even if it feels like a storm, it will move through. Um, but I know that that sometimes takes a lot of work to get there, but just working towards that and practicing just presence and curiosity um, about what you're feeling and about others it's, it's the way, and it's a very messy, complicated way, but that's, that's my nugget for that one. I love it. Well, what are ways that people can keep in touch with you or find your work? Absolutely. You can go to www.rebeccaching.com, um, sign up for my weekly rumble email list, which is launching soon. And of course you can find me in, on Instagram at Rebecca Ching MFT is also a great place to find me. Thank you so much for joining us today. And Josie, where can folks find us? 
Well, friends, you can find us at makingspacespodcast.com. You can find uh, us on Instagram at makingspacespodcast. You can find me at Josie Takes the World, Enneagram 8 Classic. And you can find Sarah at Rev Sarah Heath. <laughs> the Enneagram 8 Classic is not actually part of the name. It's just Josie Takes the World. <laughs> yeah. I'm imagining all these people Googling Josie Takes the World, Enneagram Classic 8. <laughs> That's your whole name. <laughs> This is the longest Instagram name. Well, friends, thank you so much for joining us this week. And we'll see you next week where we will be. Living a space for you. Bye. Bye. This has been an Irreverent Media Podcast.